The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Some of you were probably here last week to know that we are looking at Jack Cornfield's book, The Wise Heart, the chapter on the four Brahma Viharas, Awakening the Heart. And one of the things really, I think, useful to reflect on is this uh, dynamic between what we consider the practice and what we consider to be the fruit of practice or the results of practice. So, you know, in, in a lot of ways in life we seem quite okay about justifying struggle to get something or aversion to make something happen. But in Buddhist practice or in this particular path of awakening, there's an important integrity between the means and the end. It's just not possible to make something good out of something not good. You know, and good in a Buddhist sense is the open release of the heart, open-minded release of the heart. And what's bad is the, con the closed, constricted heart the mind that's closed or constricted. So how can we use a constricted mind, a constricted heart, to realize something that's open and free? It just doesn't work that way. I think this is really useful because it inspires us to be reflective about what, what we're interested in. You know, why do we come to a place like Common Ground? Why are we interested in a spiritual life? You know, and there's this dynamic between clarifying what our aspiration is, our goal, like why are we doing this, and then with that, whatever clarity we have, and it won't be perfect, it's like we figure out the goal, we figure out where we're going by going somewhere. You've probably noticed that in life. It's not uncommon that we don't really know where we're going until we set off on the journey. That's true with this path or any spiritual path. So we're reflecting on where we're going, we're sort of considering where we're going, having different, maybe sometimes even conflicting aspirations. And then that informs how we practice, like what we're doing with the mind, what we're doing with the heart, how we're directing the mind, or just what sort of values we have. And that work of clarifying our values and directing our mind in different ways, that changes how we understand the aspiration or the goal. So one way to think about this dance, this dynamic between the means and the end, is that they're constantly, moment by moment, informing each other. And the mind, heart gets clearer about how to practice and why we're practicing, what the goal is as we do it. And lo and behold, we realize, you know, slowly, gradually, that the means and the ends are really the same. If we want to be peaceful, we practice peace. We don't practice getting tight about not being peaceful. 
or we don't struggle to be peaceful because it's struggling isn't a cause for peace. Struggling is a cause for agitation and tightness. So, you know, what, then once we understand that there is this dynamic between the means and the ends, then it really begs the question, like, what do we know about wholesome means? What do we know about wholesome ends? And one of the things very few of us would disagree with or argue with is somehow in our bones we trust kindness. Is there anybody who doesn't trust kindness? I mean, that doesn't mean we really know what it is or how to do it, but still, even though we may be confused about what kindness is, we intuitively think it's the right thing. And we can use that, like you can even take all of the teachings, you know, like if you've studied the Buddhist teachings for a while, you know that it's pretty easy for somebody who's done a little study to answer the question, well, what are the various means the Buddha talks a lot about? Or one of the means is being mindful. You know, probably everyone would have gotten that one. You know, another means the Buddha talks a lot about um, taking responsibility for the qualities in your mind, learning how to abandon unwholesome qualities and to prevent unwholesome negative states of mind from arising and how to develop and maintain wholesome states. And then if you've done a little bit more study, you might remember there's this path that the Buddha laid out, the Eightfold Path, and it has three categories. You know, the path or the development of ethical conduct, the development of samadhi or that steadiness, concentration of mind, and the development of wisdom these three parts of the Eightfold Path. Now all of these things can be seen just in terms of some simple value like kindness or compassion. Like we can understand mindfulness in terms of compassion because compassion or kindness is this ability to include, to get close to something else, right? When we're being kind, we're learning, we're figuring out that, oh, I can be close, I can include what's going on. That's the actual act of kindness, is that we're including something. Just like hatred or aversion is somehow pushing something away or cutting something off, you know how that is. We can be in conversation on the surface, it looks like we're being kind, but at some point if we get weary or bored or whatever, we just shut down. Like we're going through the motions, we may be nodding, smiling, but we're, our heart isn't open anymore. We're no longer really there, including open to the situation. We're strategizing how to get out of this without making a mess. Or, you know, knowing that we can't get out of it, we're doing our other things. You know, fantasizing about this, thinking about that, all the while uh, pretending as if we're having a connection with somebody. The four exertions, you know, another one of the means that the Buddha talks about all the time, these four efforts, the effort to abandon unwholesome states, to cultivate wholesome states, to prevent unwholesome states from arising, to maintain the wholesome states that are already there, 
This also can be seen or looked at in terms of kindness and compassion and joy. I mean, we always hear this, you know, the best offense is a good defense. You know, if you get really good at preventing unwholesome states from arising, you see we're, we're pretty far along the way. Because if we're not allowing unwholesome states of mind to get established in the mind, then we must be maintaining and developing wholesome states. It's the only way to prevent negative states of mind from coming up. There's really no neutral ground. You know, see there the mind is caught in states of mind that lead to constriction and tightness, or states of mind, qualities of mind, that lead to the release and the opening of the heart. And this, I think, is useful. It may seem simplistic, but I, I think it really is a simple. <clears throat> Our mind, I know, I know, it appears to be complicated. But it, it might be better to assume it's very simple. <clears throat> like, for example, it only has two moves. Our mind, our heart can get tight, can react or respond to the moment by getting tight, or it can respond to the moment by relaxing, opening. And so, in terms of the effort we make in spiritual life, you know, we're learning how true, like um, just as an example, using love and all of its flavors, the flavor of compassion, the flavor of joy or appreciation, the flavor of friendliness, the flavor of equanimity. So we're using love. That's actually the means for preventing unwholesome states and abandoning un unwholesome states. So one of the easiest ways to abandon negativity in our mind is to care about it. So you, there you are having a, a complete set, something, you know, the set of circumstances has arisen in our lives pushed our buttons in just the right way, and now we're in a fit. Like all that old, those old patterns of whatever, defensiveness, rage, they've been triggered, we're in a fit, and we notice, we feel the tightness of that fit. And instead of thinking, I've got to get rid of this fit, which can generally bring up a critical mind, it says, we can immediately, in that moment, right then, immediately flip it by including the experience of being in a fit. Oh, I care about this. Of course, of course, when these particular triggers arise, these particular patterns are going to be triggered. And these particular patterns lead to the mind, the body, the heart getting tight, suffering. And I care about this. And you see, all of a sudden, the fit is the cause for compassion to arise. And we go from an unwholesome state to a wholesome state. And the same thing, you know, when we're already feeling loving, appreciative, friendly, equanimous, if we recognize that, that's how we maintain it. Simply being aware of kindness or generosity or patience is the cause for its continuation and its development. We just have to know the wholesome state as being wholesome. You can just try this out. So we can imagine and use our imagination in this end. Because we already value kindness and love, now it's just a matter of operationalizing it. So we can take the teachings of the Buddha 
and we can see it in terms of love. So as you do your mindfulness practice formally in your meditation time, informally through the day, when you take responsibility for the qualities in your mind through the four exertions, you know, just think about it in terms of love. How can, how can I set love in motion in my life? Whether it's appreciating what's good and beautiful, having compassion for what's not so good, equanimity for all the confusion, all the times when the mind doesn't know how to respond. Because these are just different ways to stay close to the moment, to include the moment. And even, you know, we could take all the ways the Buddha describes the goal of practice. So we talked about the means. We could also talk about the goal of practice and see that also in terms of love. That's really what Jack Hartsfield is trying to talk about, I think, in this chapter. Because it's just a lot more accessible to talk about the fruit of this practice, not in terms of emptiness. You know, you cultivate mindfulness, and then you realize emptiness. Or even, you know, something more specific, like the cessation of greed, anger, and delusion. But we can put, put a positive word to it, too. I don't think we should stop using the absence, you know, the absence of neurotic tendencies, the absence of self-centered drama as a description of the fruit or goal of practice, but a kind and loving heart, a heart that can appreciate life as it is, can find joy in life as it is. So the Buddha often talked about the goal, as I mentioned, as the cessation of greed, anger, and delusion. That was one of the most common ways. Another way he talked about the goal, you know, nibbana, nirvana, is as the liberation through non-clinging, the heart, mind, free of clinging. And you can see this too. I mean, one of the things we experience with any quality of love, however it's manifested, even in relatively mundane experiences of love, it changes its gravitational pull in the mind. Normally we're constructing a sense of me that has needs and has fears, and so our relationship with everything is all about protecting ourselves. Even when we go out into the world and fall in love or go out in the world and try to do some good, generally speaking, most of the time, there's a very strong self-centered pull. You know, it's about me, me being generous, me doing something good for the community, me wanting to fix this because it's bothering me. It needs to stop. I don't want to live in a world like this. So this is just how it is. But one of the qualities of love, not sort of our usual sense of the word love, but a more authentic experience of love where the heart is moved, that movement we feel is a, is a shift in paradigm from the self-centered gravitational pull to what we could describe as an upwelling, sort of a, a movement from the heart out. Because the heart or mind or whatever you want to call this, because there's a, with love or appreciation, joy, compassion, there's a sense of wholeness and aliveness, and from that place of, you know, we could say, real mental health, emotional health, maybe 
spiritual health, from that place of health, you know, the system, the mind-body system, it is just naturally generous. It's not neurotically trying to fix something, because I'm an imperfect human being, but as an imperfect human being, we're still an imperfect human being, but the heart is okay with that. It's found some peace, some equanimity. It isn't defining itself or anybody by the particular imperfect conditions of my body and mind. So it feels this natural freedom. It's a freedom when we're not projecting onto this life this sense of somebody who's imperfect and doesn't want to be. When we let that go, that description, that projection go, we'll feel alive. And out of that aliveness, aliveness naturally flows generosity. And we just, part of that generosity expresses itself as just appreciating other things. We appreciate trees. We appreciate people. I was saying this morning how moved I've been just seeing the rain gardens that the community planted over the last two years now that they're sort of maturing and they're all, as you might know, native species that we planted out in the yard here. And it's just so amazing to see all the different bugs, insects, creatures, rabbits, squirrels, just, you know, it used to all be asphalt if you didn't see the building when we first bought it and moved in. It was a whole yard. There was no grass anywhere. There's a little band next to the side of the... Was there? Maybe it wasn't even there. Maybe it was all concrete. Anyway, there's very little grass, if any. And uh, so we dug up two-thirds of the parking lot and turned it into a yard. And now you walk out there, and the gardens, the rain gardens, are just abuzz with life. And it's just something as simple as that. Normally, you know, we're averse to insects, but to see the synergy between the plants and the bugs and just the natural aliveness, it's very moving. It touches our hearts. But it only touches our hearts when we're feeling content and alive. You know, it's like... And that's that shift in paradigm. And so we see this, that this is the goal of practice, this movement of the heart, like instead of, and this is like the real trick, we can't go from being a needy, deluded, imperfect human being that needs to be saved to being the human being that's alive and happy and generous and joyful and loving and compassionate. Like the practice has to be seeing that aliveness, that contentment, that joy, that compassion, however subtle, however much it's just in a seed form, we have to see it now. And that's really what the formal, uh, we call them, the Buddha calls them, the divine abodes, the Pali phrases, the Brahma Vihara. Brahma is the word for divine. Vihara just means house, so the house of the divine or the abode. So these four emotions of loving kindness, compassion, equanimity, and joyful appreciation, these are the four emotions that we can use both as a means and then experience as an end, as a goal in our practice, when they become, as the Buddha says, boundless or immeasurable. So as a means, we're to practice, you know, I'm a deluded human being, but I have some faith in the way the Buddha is talking about our minds, our hearts, I'm just going to do what he says, you know, and he says, 
Notice kindness. Notice joy. Notice compassion. Notice equanimity. Keep noticing it. Don't forget it. You could notice all kinds of things that will make you judge yourself or judge others, want things. But instead, notice the heart's capacity for warmth, for friendliness. Or notice the heart's capacity for caring and compassion and tenderness. Notice the heart's capacity for joy and appreciation. Notice the heart's capacity for equanimity. And it's like, it's like noticing the baby Buddha in order to become a grown-up Buddha. And this is that integration between the ends and the means. Because a lot of people, they enter spiritual practice, and by doing that, they're reinforcing the idea that I'm screwed up. I'm so neurotic. I have so much rage. I have so much neediness. I'm so deluded. And that's why I have to go to Common Ground on Sunday night. But you see, what it does is it reinforces the wrong thing. It's like we're repeating, you know, I'm screwed up, I'm screwed up, I'm screwed up. And we become what we think. So instead, we could start to notice, have a really refined sensitivity for kindness a refined sensitivity for joy and equanimity and compassion. And it, you know, if we start doing that, then we start noticing it in other people. And it really begins to amplify. Because you know how it is, when we're feeling really negative, for some, I mean, I think it makes sense, but it's really tragic. For some reason, we really like to see how other people are screwed up. When we're feeling really screwed up, we want company. You know, we just want to see the negativity everywhere. So when it's the same thing. When we start to notice the integrity and the beauty and the resiliency and the inherent happiness and lightness of our heart and mind, we start to notice it in other people. Even when they're being really kind of lost in delusion, it's like we don't forget that there's something else there. I remember a particular politician that I had trouble with. This is a number of years ago, and uh, but I remembered, I, I could remember seeing pictures, hearing, maybe reading stories of him with his children, and uh, as much as I might have disagreed or, or disagreed with his attitudes about the world, I could imagine him, and I think it's probably true, really loving his daughter and having a, you know, a relatively wholesome, loving relationship with his daughter. And it made me happy. It made me happy to think of him having happy moments with his family. And it really changed. You know, it, the mind didn't want to see only what was wrong. And it didn't make me somehow, you know, less caring about the world, about wanting the world to unfold in a good way. But it just brought balance to my mind. We just get so consumed by the negative. So this is our homework, you know, for the next week and then the rest of our lives. To get interested in, in seeing these things, and especially joy, because for a lot of us, and I think especially in these days where there's, I don't know why, but maybe more of a heavy trip around fear and doom, Somehow, I'm not saying that that isn't true. I mean, there's all kinds of things, but it's always been true. You know, things have always been on the edge. 
I you know it would be hard for anybody who's a good student of history to somehow say we're more on the edge of the life or whatever whatever circle you want to talk about Minneapolis, the United States, the world, the galaxy, the whole shebang is somehow more on the edge than it's ever been. You know, things are always boom and bust. That's just the basic movement of nature, I think. But, you know, because of information and just because of different forces in our culture, I think we can get in a real funk around doom and uh, negativity. And so it would be a good practice not to be ignorant about those things, but to also be noticing what's really beautiful, noticing the quality and the capacity of all of our hearts to be moved, to be tender, to respond wholesomely to whatever is arising in our lives, to be resilient and equanimous when we don't know what to do, and to be inspired, like to constantly be being inspired and be inspiring other people. I mean, that would be a real gift if we allowed other people to be inspirations for us because that makes us so much more responsible for our practice. I see that a lot in my own life. It's like when people are inspired by me, I feel really motivated to, to do the best I can in my life. And uh, when I'm inspired by somebody else, I'm giving them a lot of, not only am I being benefited because I'm being inspired by them, I'm giving them a lot of juice to do the best they can. In the same way, if we're noticing always what's negative in each other and in ourselves, I can imagine what we're doing for each other. You know, we're just reminding each other of this, you know, this, it's a delusion. I mean, it's not delusion to notice that some of our conditioning comes out of wrong view, what we call in Buddhism wrong view, like this taking, like let's say we have a bad habit of being defensive. Now, the defensiveness is just what it is, but owning it as me, I'm defensive in some central way, that's wrong view. That's not actually the way that it is. The way that it actually is, in certain circumstances, certain causes are there, defensiveness arises. That's all we can actually say. Anything more is incorrect. But when we're always seeing the negative, we're reinforcing that wrong view that you're bad. And it feels like there's this huge amount of negativity or badness that we have to overcome. Well, we wouldn't want to give up practicing. Because, you know, the more we practice, the more there's the sort of the enormity of work we have to do. I remember distinctly on retreat, uh, I was three months, three months and, uh, and uh, I was just seeing clearly dukkha, suffering, and just my own tendencies and other people's tendencies to be negative, and through my imagination, the world's tendency to be negative. I was just seeing it, and I was like tripping out over it. I was getting a little juice, but in a negative sort of way, you know, like making a drama about how bad it all is, how bad I am, how bad you are, how bad everybody is, how bad the world is. And because I was seeing some things clearly, it felt very compelling, like I was having insight. It felt like, oh, my practice is really coming along because I'm really seeing dukkha. And I know the Buddha talks about dukkha, so I'm right on track. And then finally, at some point, after several days of 
sort of tripping out, proliferating and, and kind of getting some juice, but not in such a healthy way on this, I finally, the whole thing popped. I finally got what was going on, that, that I was making this self-centered drama about how bad it all was, that somehow it felt personal. The world is all bad. I'm seeing, I'm seeing the world is all bad. Or the world is all bad. This world that I live in is all bad. That it's like somehow we make ourselves the starring character in this terrible world that I have to live in, that I have to, that I see clearly. I guess that's kind of what it was at that time. You know, I see how screwed up the world is. And this is the thing of equanimity. This is also one of those qualities that is inherent, that we can set free, that we can set loose. It's like, okay, the world is the way that it is. There's no need for any drama. The world has always been beautiful. It's always been It's always been, it's always been this way. And this really allows us to be close. And that's what's so healing. And that's really the expression of freedom. It's this willingness, this ability we have to be completely in the middle of the imperfect world. What good would a practice be where the freedom depends on being in perfection? You know, that's sort of a more conventional idea of transcendence, like the perfection or the culmination of a spiritual life is to get the hell out of here. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, that's a pretty limited expression of, of like a spiritual goal that we have to somehow get out of here. Like, I, I'm much more moved and inspired by a practice, uh, a teaching, that we can completely inhabit here and be free here, be alive here, be loving here with everything, birth and death, sickness, vulnerability, even with people being really deluded at times. And because of that, really hateful, really mean, you know, as people are at times. That the awakening, the freedom, would be resilient no matter that the world is imperfect. That would be the kind of person I'd like to be around right now, right? If we could be around anybody, we'd want to be around somebody whose happiness whose joy, whose tenderness was unconditional. It didn't depend on being in a really nice place. Uh, Wynn and Denny and I were driving around today looking at fences, and we thought, well, let's drive through all the wealthy neighborhoods because, you know, they might have interesting fences. So we were driving through <laughs> Kenwood and, you know, along the around the neighborhoods around the lake and uh, just looking at some fences because we're thinking of putting a fence up in our backyard. And you know, it's like these, maybe some of you know the word dewa, or angelic realms, celestial realms, you know, where everything's really beautiful, you know, and tasteful, and thoughtful, like what people do, the kind of cars they buy, the kind of flowers they plant, the colors they paint their home. It's just, it's really nice. I mean, if you're conditioned a certain way, you'll find it nice. I found it nice to be driving, you know. We, we like that, but that's not 
you know, to be feeling peaceful and safe when conditions are just right is a very fragile kind of happiness because anything can interrupt it. A few minutes later, as we were driving across Franklin, coming back into this neighborhood, there was a big fight in a basketball court near Chicago and, and Franklin. Did you know that park there? Kind of classic inner city neighborhood. And a bunch of young men sort of fighting. And uh, you know, we passed trying to decide whether we should put the car on or hopefully took care of it as best they can. But just like that's the kind of neighborhood maybe where some of us would be that this is just how it is. There's some things we like and then then we get to this like we read a spiritual practice and a more conventional way of living. Like a conventional way of living, we'd like to gate ourselves off from the things that we find scary, the kind of people we find scary, the kind of situations we find scary. Just to help ourselves be happy is to get into those angelic realms where everything's the way we like it to be, where we recognize people as being like me. You know, they look like me or they act like me, and I feel safe with them. If I do that, so I avoid them. But no matter what we do, you know, we can't really get away from what we're afraid of. And in a way, we squeeze the life out of our life by trying to live that way, you know, to get to those perfect places. I mean, we're all going to do it to some degree, but that's not where we want to put, that's not the basket we want to put all our eggs, you know, like all of our effort in getting perfect conditions because it's endless and it doesn't work in the end. So we're interested in a practice, a way of being that's unconditional. And this is why love makes so much sense to us. Because it doesn't make sense, you know, like some of the bumper stickers say, you know, God loves America. Or, you know, to be more explicit, God only loves America. And maybe even more honestly, God only loves Americans as I define Americans. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, when you just think about that, that's just ridiculous. You know, like the only kind of God we'd actually care about is a God that would love unconditionally, that would really understand that even when we're really screwing up, uh, I understand, you know, I understand how that happens sometimes. I understand how we get deluded, you know, get caught. So I forgive you. You know, that's the kind of heart we're interested in, godly, loving heart we're interested in, is a heart that understands, regardless of the particular conditions. Not having to create categories of good and evil. But not being, it's not that we're being sort of uh, sentimental about life, but we just understand. It's just that equanimity and that deep wisdom that understands. Sometimes it's like this, sometimes like it, it's like this. But it's always the way that it's supposed to be, given the play of causes and conditions. And there's a way to care about the whole thing, not to have to have a heart that excludes. So you can just continue, you know, to explore both in formal ways, like the practice we did tonight, the mudita or appreciative joy practice. You can just use the phrases formally and informally, formally in your sitting time, but informally as you go about your day. Just looking about, you know, when you see something that moves your heart, 
just practice appreciating it and use the phrases are just helping the mind focus because the mind gets distracted by things that irritate us. So when we see something that's moving, like I mentioned earlier, something simple like the play of insects on flowers, and you can just say, oh, you know, may this aliveness of nature continue, may it increase, may it never end. When you see two friends smiling and having a nice conversation, we can just have that wish. May your happiness, may your good feelings for each other continue and increase and never end. Now we know it's not going to last forever, but that in that moment we can have the wish that that goodness that they're experiencing, experiencing that that just continues forever. That wish is a good wish, even though we know that things are going to change. So don't be confused by the fact that things change, because the wish is authentic. May your happiness continue, increase, and never end. I can have that wish knowing that things will change. Maybe they'll change for the better. Maybe we don't know. And then, of course, if your heart meets suffering, then you're just going to use a different phrase, like, ah, that must hurt. You must be feeling a lot of pain. I care about that pain. I have some sense of what it feels like to experience pain. And I care about the pain I imagine you're experiencing right now. And even though you're experiencing pain, I'm willing, as best I can, to be close to that as much as I can understand it and wish that somehow you find ease in your circumstances, that you're protected in some way in this, in this situation that you're in. Right? So the way we phrase it, we use a phrase to help focus the mind. It's going to be different. It takes a lot of creativity and uh, feeling uh, empowered. Like we have enough confidence that the heart can connect, so it's just a matter of finding our way in. Like how can I stay close? How can I be relaxed and open to what I'm seeing, whether we're seeing somebody's success or somebody's pain? or seeing something really that confuses us. So we can get close by being equanimous with not knowing what's going on. Not knowing whether this person is good or bad, skillful or unskillful. Anyway, I'll leave it here. We'll pick it up next Sunday. But we have some time, 10 or 15 minutes. Any questions or comments from your own life? I'm sure a lot has been learned over the years. Yeah, Nicole. Yeah. Well, I think there is some. Yeah, it's a really good question. I think there is some connection, and you know, ultimately, if you're spiritually healthy. You might, I think it'd be fair to say that, that uh, well, clearly you can be unhealthy and spiritually healthy. And I think you can be emotionally disturbed but spiritually healthy too. It's just a question of how the mind is understanding the emotional disturbance. You know, there are times when a lot of defensiveness and a lot of neurotic fear gets triggered in my mind. And sometimes I'm believing it taking it personally, and I wouldn't call that, you know, spiritually healthy, but sometimes there's a lot of space and patience 
and a willingness to be intimate with those neurotic, intense emotions. And I would say those emotions are still quite active, and if I'm not careful, I might act on them, or even if I am careful, if they have enough momentum, I might act on them. But there's also part of the mind that isn't confused by it and is willing to own whatever negative consequences are set in motion because of the defensiveness or the fear. So I think there's a lot of overlap, but I think ultimately they're separate. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned the politician. I'm, I'm really... Um, I'm not giving names. That's me. <laughs> I'm really passionate about justice. When I hear a politician about a position that I know is going to hurt people, compassion towards that person is the last thing that's on my heart and in my, my mind. And I don't like that. I don't like to feel that way, but it happens. So how do I have compassion towards that person? How do I do that? Well, one thing that I did, you know, is I noticed it didn't feel good to have a strong, fixed opinion of somebody being bad. Like that, more than, it certainly, I mean, who knows whether ever registers with that person, but yeah. probably not. But absolutely it registers in my heart. So first and foremost, I'm harming myself by hitting somebody or having, you know, negative feelings yeah. towards somebody. Yeah. And so if we see that clearly, then we also understand clearly that this is inappropriate, this isn't helping, this is causing harm. And then we're motivated to do something. Compassion arises for ourselves. So that's where I started, compassion for ourselves. What can I do so that I don't get in this contracted state of hating this politician or this, you know, this, these people who are causing harm to other people? What can I do? And it doesn't mean that we have to... Like, the other thing that's happening is we're imagining or maybe we even know some of the people that are being harmed. And we want to continue to be touched by that and to be moved to do whatever we can do. If there's something we can do, we want to be moved to, to do that. But we don't want to rely on anger or hatred to motivate our action. We can let compassion. Compassion is a better motivator, actually, than anger. So the... The way to deal with it is to always start with the present moment. And if we start with the present moment, we'll realize this hatred hurts. Well, let me get interested. Oh, yeah, it really hurts. And the more we relax and see that clearly, we realize it's not helping anybody. This whole world, the what's wrong with this world is hatred. And here I am hating somebody. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Louis. I was listening to, like, um, it's almost like... Uh, there was a ghost in the room, and the ghost was uh, original sin, yeah. which I think really pervades, uh, you know, mainstream culture, whether people belong to a church or not. That idea that we're essentially bad and evil is pretty pervasive. And even though I feel like I've let it go, I keep encountering it because people are acting from that place that they really believe, you know, how, yeah, they really are invested in original sin and the reality. Yeah, and I don't think it's an easy, you know, our culture has made an imprint in our mind. And the thing is, 
that idea of original sin uh, really supports the other tendency of our minds, this other virus we've been um, infected with, which is self-centeredness. And they work really well together. Being bad is much more dramatic for the self-centered mind, for the deluded mind, the, the, those patterns of the mind that takes everything personally. It's just a easy way for that story to organize itself. And being good is, is a little, or being free, is a, is a little less uh, juicy. And so that's why I think instead of the Buddha leading, you know, in terms of how he taught, instead of leading with this idea that, you know, your heart is essentially pure and free, he leads, he leads with there is dukkha, you know, and then the cause for this dukkha is that story, you know, of original sin, that there's a somebody who's bad, there's a somebody who's deluded. You know, so that, that's what he leads with because that's what we see, that's what we can see pretty easily. And then the question is, well, what is this hard mind without that? You know, it kind of begs the question, doesn't it? Like, what happens if we didn't have that view, if we weren't infected with that view? of original sin, of self, who's bad. And that's the path, this is sort of the backward path. We're unwinding, you know, it's really a path of not obscuring the mind, the natural mind, with self-centered thoughts, thoughts of being bad. I mentioned this before, a long time ago, about this retreat I did with Ajahn Tomato, this wonderful teacher. And uh, day after day, to this nine-day retreat, he would say something like, you know, like making fun of all of us for this strong idea, I'm a deluded human being who needs to practice meditation in order to be free. And then he would just laugh and laugh and laugh. <laughs> as if that notion and the fixation we have on that notion is the funniest thing. Like, like just that tendency we have to keep going back there. Like how many times tonight when we got distracted, you know, started thinking about something mundane, like what's on TV or... You know, and then we catch ourselves. Did we, did we reinforce that idea? Oh, I'm being bad. You know, I have original sin. <laughs> I'm thinking about this again. And, uh, you know, I just... We had nuns where I went to school. Great for the art. Actually, we had a nun, just one. It hit you underneath. I remember crying in her class. <laughs> I still think she had a good heart, but boy, was she confused about that. <laughs> One thing she thought that was so wonderful, she thought, whenever you hear an ambulance, it's a beautiful time to pray. And I, a, I still remember that, you know? It's like, oh, somebody's in need. Something bad is happening to somebody. But she had this old ethic around <laughs> reward and punishment. Any last? Uh, we have time for maybe a few more comments, actually. Yeah, Eric. Um, it seems so obvious in some ways that maybe there's something in it. Um, I'll uh, give an image. It's easy for me to practice in the morning, and it's easy for me to practice at, at night. In part, those are like more dramatic times of day because there's change that's happening. And in the same way, in, in my life, 
I remember Fletcher being here last week and having a pretty heavy heart, and he found it easy and really rewarding to practice. And I feel relatively unburdened, even though that was another condition that um, I came with. And I noticed that in periods like the middle of the day, where things are relatively stable, I have a habit of scanning the field for the worst thing I can find practice with, and oftentimes it's really confusing uh, because I know that there is something that could be found, uh, perhaps, if I thought long enough about it, um, and it's just like I'm not doing my job, if there isn't something really, like, really juicy or really clear to practice with, and oftentimes you just spend my, spend my system in doubt or just in cracking up. And, I don't know, I don't know if there's, there's a question embedded in there, but it's, I feel like it's actually a development practice around just a little loosening of the sense of self, actually, like, Yeah, no, I think it's a really important point. I'm glad you brought it up, actually. And I think it does relate to what we've been talking about tonight. Um, with, you know, the general theme is, in the talk tonight, it's about noticing beautiful quality. And partly, and Jack Hartzell even touches on this in his this chapter, he says, you know, when they first started teaching in the 70s, a number of Westerners who had studied in Asia, Jack had, Jack Hornfield had been a monk for five years or so and done a lot of practice in Asia and then came back, they tended to emphasize the suffering for a lot of practical good reasons. And he also says, because it's sort of, they were young, you know, they were in their 20s, a lot of them who were teaching then, and it kind of gave them some seriousness, some gravitas, he says in this sentence, because they were able to talk about suffering. So generally, you know, we do emphasize noticing the dukkha, noticing the negative patterns of the mind, but it usually gets out of balance at some point, and especially as, I think as Eric was describing, you know, as you practice more and more and the practice matures some, then there are not just, you know, what's predominant, what's happening isn't just negative states of mind. There are more moments of equanimity, moments of contentedness, moments of ease, moments of joy, moments of compassion, moments of all kinds of beautiful qualities. And, but we're like, we don't, we haven't been taught to notice those. And then, exactly, I, I remember these experiences too of just feeling confused, like, I don't know what to do because I don't see anything juicy to pay attention to. You know, God, please give me something <laughs> or something difficult, you know. Because then I know what to do. And so uh, I was, again, an, another longer retreat, and I remember just really confused and struggling with my practice. And finally, after like three or four days, it just dawned on my mind. It was a real insight. Oh, this is equanimity. I, I was experiencing equanimity in a way I wasn't used to. Everything was even. And I thought I was somehow disconnected or just not paying attention or you know, screwing up in some way, like that old pattern, I must be screwing up because I don't recognize this, or it's not working like I remember it's supposed to work. Or, and then I just, I realized, oh, the mind is just really equanimous, it's peaceful. And then all of a sudden it got really clear again. You know how it is, it's like when we're looking for something, but looking in the wrong place, or looking for the wrong thing, then what's actually arising, the mind gets very disturbed. So one of the reasons to formally take up the practices that I've been talking about tonight and last week and we'll talk about next week 
is it will prepare us for this inevitable transition when there are fewer of the difficult states and more of the balanced, beautiful states. And we'll learn how to continue our practice even when there are really more wholesome states of mind. Because we still have to practice. Otherwise, we're just going to take those wholesome states of mind personally in the same way we take the difficult states of mind personally. You know? So instead of having original sin, We'll have original grandeur, you know. <laughs> like, I'm God, you know, and you guys are screwed up, but not me, you know. And we get a lot of that in the spiritual world. You know, if you look around, if you hang around spiritual communities long enough, you'll see both, really, in almost equal proportion. People who are really into what's wrong with them and thinking they got a lot of work to do, and people who think they're fully enlightened and, uh, you know, just beautiful, radiant beings. And they get identified with that. And then they're in for a, a painful crash. You know, normally they're able to deny the irritation until it becomes so obvious or people around them just make it very obvious, you know, that they're thinking and they're, they're still averse <laughs> because that doesn't fit their story anymore. You know, and then there's a crash. And then they feel like the practice has betrayed them because they thought they'd made a lot of progress. And they might have. But they got confused by not noticing the wholesome, beautiful state. So they took, taken them personally, and they made, they built a sense of self around them, which you know ends up being a big ball and chain. I think we have to leave it here. So let's just take a few seconds, maybe take a breath or two together. Appreciating our time. Appreciating these ancient practical teachings. And you can even visualize through history all the women, all the men, through so many different cultures, places that have done their practice. These are women and men, just like us, with busy lives, complicated lives, duties and responsibilities. They have bodies, just like we have bodies. And they did their practice and gained some real insight and did their best to share what they learned and like this generation by generation. So now it's our turn to develop the practice as best we can and to live it and model it as best we can so that we become part of this dream, this continuation of these very useful teachings. So may this be so. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.